Well, hello, and uh, I'm Alec Hogg, and with us is David Shapiro. David, isn't it funny? I mean, we go on to our noontime webinar, and so help me the hackers try and bring our site down. Anyway, we've got Cloudflare uh, to bump them off, but it really is irritating that uh, that people think they can, I suppose, target you when you're supposedly at, at a weak point. But fortunately, we've got the best in the business to sort them out. So you're all safe now. It's a whole new world. You know, in the old printing press, the only sabotage you had to worry about were perhaps uh, somebody coming in and uh, and putting a spanner in the spokes of your printing press or maybe <laughs> pouring, pouring sand into the delivery vehicle engines. And today, uh, we, get a, we get a different. But anyway, we, thankfully, we've been around a while, so we're well prepared for it. So the site uh, as it as continues going forward. It just is, it is the way it is. But, David, uh, from your side, it's been uh, – I don't know. Did you listen to Sir Ramaphosa last night? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> Not for no other reason that we had load shedding. So. <laughs> you really what a joke. Isn't it ironic? It's not a joke. It, it, you know, it, 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 it's ironic that you um, that you get kicked out, and um, you know. So anyway, I read the headlines. I mean, I know what's happening, and it's a it's a kind of step backwards. I understand what they're doing, but there's still a lot of anger out there. And, uh, you know, a lot of concern. Alec, you know, my big concern is that as we go backwards, I think people get taken down another notch. And that's, you know, that's what's concerning is that economies are driven by confidence. And, you know, that's, that's what gets people to go out and spend and to do things and that. And yeah, we've been very patient and we understand the consequences and that. But when you go backwards, you know, when you feel that you're making progress and then have to go backwards, I think it has a very, very negative consequence. And what we must understand as well, you know, from, I know the liquor side, you know, it's, 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 it's rather unfortunate that we have people who get drunk and drive and diet and cause accidents and fill hospitals uh, and so on. It's also an indictment on our law enforcement agencies and that, but this, you know, it hurts, it hurts all the retailers. They're big into cigarettes and they're big into to liquor as well, whether it's spa, whether it's checkers, no matter who it is, you know, it's a big part and there are big margins there as well. So it's going to be felt in the retail industry as well, you know, in, 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 that, in that side of it. David, I'm seeing some very uncomfortable parallels here with the 1930s in the United States, uh, economy contracting, and then the politicians at that stage thought they they could apply rules like prohibition, and all it did was give us Al Capone, gangsters, fear, craziness that went on during that period until they were eventually forced to relent. And this prohibition... Uh, which, because it is, that's what it is. You, you announce uh, at 8 o'clock at night that no more alcohol will be sold. It almost looks like a very, very blunt tool that is being applied without any engagement. We're going to have people from the liquor uh, industry joining us a little later to give their thoughts, but from the statement that they issued today, there was no consultation. They were never told. They were never asked. They were never given any options of how they could help in um, – Preventing uh, the, the the excess or the increase in deaths, uh, which which come from the, again the sale of alcohol, and that it, it looks like we just got a you know a command council, old Soviet style, do it my way or else. 
I think uh, you, you've touched on a very sensitive point. You know, we're perhaps uh, topping the league there, but if, this is the biggest concern about lockdown uh, overall, I think, in the global economy, that governments are just taking it upon themselves. They've forgotten about the consultative uh, process, you know, and a de- the democratic process. They're just doing things um, of their own accord. And, uh, you know, you even see it in, in financial sectors. You know, even here, Stephen Kossett, bless his heart, and I'm not having an attack on him, he said, you know, companies should just be allowed to issue shares. You say, hold on a sec. You say, you can't, we know you're in trouble, but you've still got to have some kind of process. You can't just override these kind of things and just issue shares. And it's the same way as here. You can't just close down business without some kind of consultation. You are going back to that and you're driving this underground. People will find liquor that, that kind of falls off the back of a truck, which is exactly what it did in the bootlegging days. And uh, people who want to drink will drink. You know, they will find it. They, they're going to have people over or they're going to have a dinner. And, and it's the same as smoking. I haven't seen people, you know, dropping down dead from, <laughs> from, from not having their smoke. So they obviously are getting it somewhere. So, so people are benefiting. And I'm, I'm on your side in this respect. I think that, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is not going the right way. And I, I think the processes you're right are not the, are not correct. What do you as an investor? Uh, you would be looking at the competence or it's either brilliance or incompetence or they captured. Uh, it, it's got to be one of the three. It's either brilliance because they know something that we don't know, i.e. that they're going to be closing down all the cigarettes uh, or the illicit cigarettes and the illicit um, liquor industry, or it's incompetent. They don't know how to and they're making stupid decisions. Or it's captured in that the the government is actually against the state, as has been written time and time, time again. So you've got one of those three, and I think any rational person is going to ask the questions on, on those three. But how are the investment markets voting? What are they looking for? That's, that's where we're being misled. Um, by being misled, you know, the, at the moment, the markets are doing pretty well here. But when you analyze them, it's not South Africa Inc. that is recovering. Yes, there's a lot of trading taking place in underlying shares, but overall that side of the economy is under huge pressure. You know, there's been big, big sell-offs. Even in banks, you know, there's been a recent recovery in banks, a recent recovery in one or two other shares, but overall South Africa Inc. is under enormous pressure. If not for, uh, if not for process, if not for gold shares, if not for the mining shares, which are all things that are happening outside our border, the iron ore price, the copper price, the gold price, you know, we hardly mine, we mine a hundred tons here, uh, so, so we're hardly big miners. So that's keeping the JSE. Take that away, you've got a different picture that has emerged, you know, which is, which is showing you very, very weak underlying businesses and that. So that's, that's what you've got to look at to see how the business community are coping with it and wait until the results start to come out, which we've already started to see in the form of trading statements. A lot of pressure here. And that's where taxes are collected. Taxes are collected from, taxes are collected from money that's made in South Africa. Not from process, not from BHP or Anglos, not from those mines. You know, you don't make that. That's collected in Brazil, you know, or uh, wherever they operate. So understand that. But where's the where's the disconnect here? Because if you continue to play the game that's being played, in other words, 
We are all powerful politicians. We will decide what is good for you in South Africa. And I get that they've been elected, the, the, the politicians are elected, and they, they can, until they get chucked out of office, believe that. But there's a disconnect between what they're doing and, and the reality. Where, how are they going to fund this, all of this? How are they going to pay the salaries at the end of the month? How are they going to continue to keep the wheels of the economy rolling, or the public sector, which is one-third of the people employed in this country, who then get paid by those in the private sector? Is there, Where does that disconnect come, or are they gambling with us? <laughs> They're just hoping that something happens that gets them out of the poop, and it's not going to happen. In other words, you're right to be fearful. You know, you're right to bring up those things because they're not careful, making. It doesn't balance. It doesn't balance. How are you going to save SAA? How are you going to save all these institutions? The only way you can do it, which is not going to happen, because Tito won't allow it, or certainly Lissetra won't allow it, is to print money. You know, that's the only way you can start creating monopoly money has happened in Zim, but they're not going to allow that. And, and, and God forbid that happens because Iran will just tank. So we haven't got the money and nor is there a plan or a coherent plan, um, you know, to, to get this right. So you've got to, the money's here, Alec. The actual money is hidden. <laughs> what you've got to do is create the confidence that people feel um, that they want to spend it or they want to make the investment, and that's where the disconnect's coming. The government's saying, we know better. We know how to do this. Don't interfere. And business people are saying, just, just let us be part of it. Come and consult us. We'll do it. But you've got to get away from ideology, and you've got to get away from this almost authoritarian approach and let us do what we are good at. You know, so I, I, from my point of view, that's where the disconnect's coming is, you know, this, uh, what are you, the de developmental state, you know, we know what's good for you. We're not China. <laughs> we haven't got 2,000 years of, uh, you know, of culture behind us to, uh, to do that, you know, so, uh, that, that's where the worry is. And that's where the worry is actually available in, you know, you see that in the kind of results that are coming out and in SA Inc. companies. David, from the uh, people that you deal with, your clients, you've got lots of wealthy clients, people yep. who make huge contributions to this economy through their taxes. What are they feeling about what they see, uh, the way that the government has been handling this whole lockdown? I've been talking about it the whole morning. They're hugely concerned. And, and you always ask me where I invest. And I think the safe haven or the safety valve is, okay, we'll live here as expats, but we're going to protect our money by taking it offshore. And I think that's what, ha that's, that's what we've seen uh, happening here. You know, people are very nervous of investing in South Africa, and whatever money they have is being channeled offshore correctly. You know, it's a correct decision. They'll bring it back. If, if there's opportunities here, that money will come back. But at the moment, there's far better opportunities elsewhere than, than in South Africa. And that's the message we can't get it through. You know, we can't get that through. Create the environment. Put out a red carpet. You know, ease back on so many of the constraints and, and, and uh, you know, inhibitions that you, that you create in the market. Just forget about the ideology. Forget about politics. Let's get growth going. Let's get businesses up. But <laughs> you can't make headway. And, and this is an example. You know, this is an example. But dare challenge them. You dare not challenge them. You know. There's my question for you, David. Mm -hmm. 
Is this government incompetent, captured, or brilliant? I, I wouldn't say the last. <laughs> I think it's more incompetent and captured. Um, and, and, and we don't know who the advisors are. We don't know what goes around, um, you know, cabinet meetings and where these decisions are getting made. You know, the other point as well is that, yes, there are other opposition parties as well. Consult them, bring them in as well. You know, use them. That's democracy. You know, I know you're the leading party, but it doesn't mean that they marginalise. It does mean that there are other people with other views in the country. And in fact, I, I, I suppose the same thing applies in America as well. You know, you don't you don't get all the views. And in America, you know, 50% of the people didn't vote for you, or more than 50%. Use them, speak to them as well. You know, represent the entire nation and use the brains, use use whatever you can get within the nation. That's what I find just astonishing in this country as well, that we do have a history of, 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 of good governance and we do have a history of very competent business people, you know, who've pulled us out of a lot more you know, uh, very, very difficult times. Find them, use them, talk to them. Doesn't happen. Interesting point that you make there. Um, how many people voted for the ANC? What was the percentage? Was it at the last well, election? Call it 60%. Well, was it less than that? 60? Uh, I don't know. And, and so it means that 40% did it, yeah. <laughs> and, and you consider how many people didn't vote. Oh. So you don't really have a, a, a divine right to, real, uh, to rule like an autocracy. So that's my view, yeah. That's, uh, that, that's, that's what share. I can't understand. The shared by people who can make a difference in this economy. Uh, are, they, are people now getting angry and saying... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think people are getting very, very angry now. And the wrong kind of people, the people who've got the money and have got the money to invest, you know, those are the ones that are getting very angry and those are the ones you need. So, um, I, you know, I, and, and I think we are, you know, Tita understands, Lucetia <laughs> understands, they know, you know, if you speak to them, they know exactly what needs to be done. But um, I don't think it's shared right you know, across the table or around the table. David Shapiro, as always, uh, <laughs> calling us beta bloody shovel <laughs> and doing a, a direct talk. Well, we had a we had a wonderful <laughs> webinar last week with the, the founders of First Brand, and in that, um, I asked Paul Harris what was his likely future. What was he looking for the future in South Africa? He said, "You know what? We don't live in a zoo. Most countries are like zoos, where where people." Uh, just go about things, they get fed, they get happy. He says, we live in, in, in a wilderness. And in a wilderness, there are lots of opportunity. But sometimes it can be, uh, it can be quite a wild place to be. Now, David, I think you've got a message on your side, so we won't worry too much about it. The, door, the doorbell's ringing and my wife's got pods in her ear and can't hear it. <laughs> well, stay with us, David. Let's bring Nick Hudson in now. Uh, Nick Hudson is... One of the uh, people, I guess, hi, Nick, uh, who hi, would agree hi. with quite a lot of what you say a moment ago. Nick, just, just for background, it was an oblique reference, I would say, to you guys last night by the president saying that uh, you have these, uh, th- these forecasters who, who are not really uh, all with it. Um, you've said continuously at Panda, uh, that you guys are looking at, at South Africa having about 10,000 uh, mortalities in total. The president again last night said his model is, say, 
it's somewhere between 40 and 50,000. You have also said to me that when the facts change, you, you will change your mind. Are you at the moment changing your mind? No, absolutely not, Alec. We have stuck to that 10,000 number since our first correspondence with the NICD in April. And we don't see any reason to change it. Um, you know, a fair summary of the situation is that the, the, the hypotheses of the modelers have been falsified by the emerging facts. And by that I mean by every single country's experience anywhere in the world, every time a country that's come out of lockdown hasn't had a resurgence, there have just been repeated instances of falsification of their hypotheses. And, I mean, it's fair to say that faced with a choice between changing their hypotheses and abandoning reason, they've opted to abandon reason. And so our government is being misinformed. Let's just uh, pick up uh, a couple of the uh, comments that came out or uh, little segments that came out last night. I'm going to start with the curfew because I'd like to get your insight into this. If you can just uh, let's, let's just hear what the president had to say. It's about 45 seconds. Most of these and other trauma occur at night. Therefore, as an additional measure to reduce the pressure on hospitals, a curfew will be put in place between the hours of 9 p.m. and 4 a.m. Apart from people who need to travel to and from work or who need to seek urgent medical or other assistance during this time, everyone will be required to remain at home. The curfew will take effect from tomorrow, Monday the 13th, 2020 at 9 p.m. Okay, so we have a curfew. Is that, has that proved successful anywhere in the world? Let's, I think to, in order to assess success, you have to look at what it's trying to achieve. You know, there were curfews placed, put in place in many regions. The, the short answer is it hasn't achieved success anywhere. Um, NPIs have not been demonstrated to, to delay or flatten curves in any country in the world. That is a, a, an, an assertion or a, a view of the world that has just repeatedly been disproven. But let's look at this, let's look at this instance, Alec. I mean, it's, it's almost comical, okay? What you've got is a handful of hospitals in Khartek that are indeed, um, full to the rafters, as they have been for most of the last two decades, okay? We built a facility at NASDAQ, provisioned it with thousands of beds for the purpose of dealing with overburdening that was anticipated under these enormously overwrought models. That facility was not equipped with oxygen. Only eight beds are oxygenated, as I heard this weekend. So more or less can't be used for these thousands of COVID patients that are anticipated. Just say that again. Only eight beds in that facility we're equipped with oxygen. Okay, so is that incompetence, captured, or brilliance? A combination of the first two, um, definitely both, I would say. But the, that's just my opinion. Uh, I mean, I think an alternative is very hard to see your way to. But in response to the situation with a couple of overburdened hospitals in Gauteng, we've gone and imposed a curfew on an entire economy. So in the Western Cape or in the Northern Cape where there's not much happening at all, in the Western Cape we're in decline, we've passed our peak 
few weeks ago. Um, we now have all of those businesses that were just getting going again, all the restaurant and, and services companies that are, will be affected by this, are now slammed back into complete disarray. And just bear in mind that in addition to this kind of absolute idiocy, they were already dealing with blackouts, stage two load shed, and a period of a couple of months, three months, where they weren't able to earn any revenues at all. You know, there's been this rather facile notion that, that it's okay to shut these businesses down, it just affects the 1%. But it's precisely the other way around. The 1%ers are people like you and me and all the university professors who are shouting for lockdown, um, the public sector doctors who are shouting for lockdown, they're the 1%. The people who are affected by this are the workers and the entrepreneurs in this economy. Your middle to low middle income people are going to bear the brunt of all of this. And, you know, our economic research shows that there's an enormous wave of uh, business shutdowns coming in August and September. And it is an absolute fallacy to attribute those to coronavirus. Those are attributable to this crazy lockdown. How, how heavy is our lockdown in South Africa compared with other parts of the world? Ours is by quite some distance one of the most draconian lockdowns that has been recorded anywhere. And you would argue that that's uh, not justified given the data? Yeah, when I say there's an absence of evidence in support of lockdown having any curve-flattening um, consequences, I mean, I mean the, the word absolute in its full sense. We've, we've gone out and asked people to provide statistical evidence of that claim we furnished our own statistical analysis that shows that there's no relationship between lockdown stringency and the number of deaths in a pandemic or the, the number of days to the peak of that pandemic. So in other words, if you haven't got a correlation with both of those, actually, then you have a problem. If you haven't got a correlation with the duration to peak, then the, flat, then the curve flattening uh, thesis fails. We haven't had a single response. The only response I get, because it's, it's almost comical, is... But Sweden, Finland, you know, look, Sweden, Finland. And it's a ridiculous cherry-picking exercise. I mean, if, if I include all the countries in the world, which is the right thing to do, such a relationship doesn't emerge. And the one thing we know about the, 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 the vast differences between one country's experience and the, next, and the next is that there are many, many factors at play. It's not just the story of lockdown. There are age differences, comorbidity preference, uh, prevalence differences, there are um, density issues at play potentially and, you know, all sorts of uh, reasons why two countries might have different death rates. I mean, a very interesting one that emerged and was pointed out to us last week is the intensity of last year's flu season is a very strong predictor in an inverse kind of way. So if you had a, a severe flu season last year, you will have a light COVID uh, epidemic. And if you had a weak flu season last year, you have a strong COVID epidemic. And that, for example, just happens to be very explanatory of the differences that are observed between the various Nordic, Nordic countries. So there are all sorts of issues at play. And the fact that that's the only piece of evidence we ever get shown is just telling you how weak the science is in support of lockdown theory. And I mean, we mustn't forget that until 2019, the World Health Organization's official policy was that lockdowns didn't work. Wow. 
Uh, Nick, uh, some of the other points that were made last night, well, the, the biggest one, the one that's caused the most controversy, given that we know, uh, certainly here at Biz News, we've had two cigarette smugglers come on to our podcast, tell us how they get the, the cigarettes into the country, explain wow. that the prices are now up by five or 600%, explain that when cigarettes are more expensive, people share them. So, in other words, doing precisely the opposite to what the whole intention was, that people would not share cigarettes, that that it's not banned. Of course, last night we had alcohol being banned or alcohol sales being banned. Again, from what is happening globally, what is the justification of that? I'm going to play in a moment um, when we get the liquor industry spokespeople on what the president said about that last night. But from a, a, a pure data perspective, is there a correlation between banning alcohol and lower COVID-19 deaths? Definitely not a correlation in that regard. I mean, I think the motivation is to try and ease the emergency wards of those overburdened hospitals. But again, assuming that that was indeed the cause, which I'm happy to go with, then the sensible thing to do would be to ban alcohol sales in a 10-kilometer radius of those hospitals, not throughout the whole country. You know, and and so you, you have to ask, okay, it's so obvious that that's the case. What's the alternative motive? And if you're telling me that I need to go to a conspiracy theory, that there's a, that there's a capture story behind this, yeah, that's sounding like a sensible story right now because the deep irrationality of what was done last night is hard not to see. Well, we have enough experience from other countries in the world where alcohol sales uh, have been banned and the consequence has been uh, just funding the, the illicit economy. It is strange that 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 rational consequence is not believed. However, uh, that there might be another thing, and that's just an incompetent decision or a decision taken uh, as a as a collective, so nobody's really responsible. Yeah, a combination of the two is probably the probably where I would put my bets. I'm going to play you something else because this really had me confused last night. Uh, when the president spoke about taxis, he explained the following. So just, just listen carefully and see if you can get the logic in it. Taxis undertaking long trips will have to adhere to a 70% occupancy. But those who are undertaking local trips will be permitted to increase their capacity to 100%. Help me out here. Where's the logic? Look, in, in this one, there is actually a thread of the plausible. Um, I'm going to be, so let me, let me give it its most generous possible interpretation. Um, there, uh, it, it's not too stunning to sort of understand that there's, there's a theory that says that viral load is what, um, is a, is, a, is a leading sort of indicator of um, how likely you are to become infected and also of disease course. Okay, so that's, that's a plausible story. And so if you're sitting next to somebody who's infected um, for 10 minutes, that's different from sitting next to them for a three-hour journey. Okay, so there is some shred of um, science uh, that you could reach for to support that, that story. Um, Funny enough, the one thing that masks do is make sure that your air projects sideways and not forwards, um, which would seem to be (laughs) 
a little bit hard to understand in the context of sitting in a taxi, but let's drop the mask issue for now because that, that's one area where I, I don't think you would ever get scientific support for wearing ordinary cloth masks. The experiments are just too difficult to arrange and the, the non-healthcare um, consequences are also all too difficult to pin down. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that one has a little bit of um, method to it. But again, Alec, we, we're, we're making the huge assumption here that asymptomatic cases are highly trans, transmissive. You know, what, what you want to do for sure is make sure that sick people, people who are coughing and sneezing and sputtering, are not out and about in public. But, you know, an interesting thing happened two weeks ago. The, the, the chief scientist at the World Health Organization, I think she, her title is Director of Science, came out and said, look, as far as the World Health Organization is concerned, there's not a lot of science behind the idea that asymptomatic transmission actually takes place. Then, very, very, quite stunningly, on the same day, the World Health Organization, um, which had previously been of the opinion that wearing cloth masks did not help at all, okay, did an about face on the wearing of cloth, cloth masks. And we understand that that emerged from the, the head office. Okay. Now, just think about that. Those are completely contradictory pieces of information being released on the same day. I mean, the, the motivation, the supposed motivation for wearing cloth masks is that it reduces asymptomatic transmission. But here you have the head scientist coming out and saying there is no asymptomatic transmission. Now, in the face of that enormous contradiction, if we watched carefully and a couple of hours later, I think it took four hours, the director of science's opinion on asymptomatic trans transmission was quietly withdrawn and the mask wearing story stuck. That is the level of absurdity that we're dealing with in this world at the moment, Alec. It cannot be made up. There have been a lot of these uh, examples. I know the DA is getting all excited about uh, in the Western Cape uh, about the president saying, you can have interprovincial or intra-provincial, so not outside the province, uh, uh, leisure bookings. And then four or five hours later, that was also uh, retracted yeah. after being announced. We had cigarette sales, which were then un, uh, were, were released, and then that being retracted as well. So it's, it's this kind of flip-flopping, which I guess does send a lack of confidence through to the the general public. But just from your perspective, you guys at Panda have been banging this drum now for a long time. The, even last night, the president said again that he's looking at uh, his modelers. He believes his modelers is, say, forty to 50,000 deaths in South Africa by the end of the year. Uh, are you still sticking to 10,000? And indeed, uh, would there be any reason um, for you to change that forecast? Oh, oh yes. Um, if if the debt suddenly deviated from the the curves that we are using, and those are simply, you know, curves that have been observed to fit elsewhere in the world, we haven't got some. We've never been in the model building game. Okay, we're not here to try and, yeah, put a better model in place. We just use these curves to illustrate how out of whack the the science of these models models really is. And we've been, as you say, banging that drum. Very quietly since April, with a little bit more noise at the Dr. Kiesel's modeling symposium in May. And since then, as we've been ignored and ignored and ignored, with continuing, with escalating volume in the press. And they haven't answered a single criticism, you know. It is manifestly clear 
that those models are out of whack. And it, it got reached an almost comic pitch two weeks ago at the Western Cape's modeling presentation where, you know, uh, the, the numbers just carried on tracking our curve. The, the, the models rapidly exponentiating curves were now being, you know, leaving those numbers far behind. And the guys were scrambling to try and explain the differences. And it got quite sinister. They started using the all-cause mortality excess deaths death to plug the gap, which they could only do if they actually assumed that because of lockdown, all-cause mortality would be lighter. <laughs> so they, they jumped the curve down and then compared it to their line of the line of all-cause mortality and assumed that this inflated number of excess deaths was the reason for their modeling, their models not working. Okay. Now those are, <laughs> it's, it's just insane, Alec. It's, it's completely gobsmackingly insane. And, you know, as I said earlier at the start of this, you know, faced with the choice between revising their hypotheses and abandoning reason, they've chosen to abandon reason. It's as simple as that. So to answer your question, if those, if those numbers divert from our curve, then we adjust our, then we adjust our uh, projection. Um, and if it's, if it's a big enough jump, then we would seriously reconsider our hypotheses. And that's fair game. That's how science works. I wouldn't feel bad for a second if something, you know, there have been a number of things that we've, we've, we've uh, called incorrectly, that none of them very consequential, but we just turn on a dime. If something, turn, if, we, if something that we guessed would be the case turns out to be wrong, we just change our mind. It's no big deal. That's how science should proceed. And if those models had done the same thing, when it started becoming obvious that their assumptions were wrong and that, that the time it became, started becoming obvious as we're learning is actually February, um, you know, to, if you want to be really fair, March. But, um, you know, since then they've just done nothing. They stick with their guns. I mean, it's, it's, it, you, you know, they've got this curve. The deaths don't arrive. So all they do is push the curve forward a little bit, expecting it to, you know, rather than asking themselves the question, what are we getting wrong? And that's really frustrating for us because we've pointed out to them. In your, in your pages, you know, look, that assumption that you've got there, it's not, it's not being, uh, emerging in practice, you know. If you, you, you've said time and time again that if lockdown goes away, there'll be a resurgence of deaths. Well, 40 countries have now abandoned their lockdowns and there'd be no resurgence in deaths. What part of your hypothesis are you changing? Radio silence. And all we get back are ad hominem attacks. Never any logic, never any reasoning. Just name calling. There was a great example of it. Some sock puppet wrote an article on your pages today. Jay, somebody. You know, it's not a real person. That'll be one of the models tearing their hair out. I'm not even going to bother responding. It was such a deranged article. But, you know, that's the kind of thing we get. Just an ad hominem attack. What has the reaction been like elsewhere, though? We do know that uh, from government, from some epidemiologists, they, they're very critical of the yeah. voice that you are expressing. What is, what is the, uh, elsewhere people that you may be engaged with? How are they responding to you? There's been no engagement of any scientific nature. It's just name calling. So, I mean, yes, these guys are like politically vested in a certain view of the world. And as that view becomes harder and harder to sustain, all they respond with is noise. We, I mean, we've tapped into, you know, an epidemiological network internationally. We're in touch with with epidemiologists who see the world the same way as we do. Um, and there's some very big names in science on our side of the story. And that, that, that group will get bigger and bigger. They've been largely censored and silenced throughout this epidemic. I mean, you've had YouTube pulling down the, the, the videos made by acclaimed and, you know, decades of, 
claimed epidemiologist with decades of experience, you know, to saying, look, guys, we're getting this story wrong. Pull the video down because it contradicts the, the manager. You know, the sort of this kind of woke cancel culture is infecting science. And you've got John Ioannidis, you've got Anders Tegnell, you've got John Giesecke, you've got uh, um, Maskey, you've got Katz, David Katz. Yeah, I could, I could rattle off 20 names if you gave me a few minutes of acclaimed epidemiologists who are all saying the same thing. Acclaimed virologists, acclaimed immunologists. We, we are really in the grip of pseudoscience here, and it is a, it's a, it's a breathtaking affair. I mean, there are some seriously good memoirs that are going to be written in the next couple of years as the whole edifice of this lockdown panic porn phenomenon uh, is laid bare. And the tragedy, the tragedy that ensues from the lockdown is counted. Nick Hudson from Panda, thank you very much. It, it, it would be almost laughable if it wasn't so serious and that the decisions I, are being made. Thanks very much, Nick. Well, we're going to move on to a different topic now as we welcome Grant back and Glenn Smith. They are uh, with the South African Airways Pilots Association. Gents, if you can switch your video cameras and your microphones on. I can see Grant, your, your mic came on for a second. Glenn, there we go. Getting there. Uh, Okay, getting there, and then the the uh, uh, there we go, Grant. You should be with us. There you are, um, and Glenn. I think there we go. Okay, well, good to see you, gents. Do I call you Captain Captain, or can I call you by your first name? First name is fine. You guys, a little bit like our previous guest uh, Nick Hudson, have been vilified in the media uh, by government or by the authorities. Uh, the regime, as, as Professor Michael uh, Levitt, the, the only Nobel-winning scientist uh, from South Africa, uh, has, has described um, the, well, uh, the authorities nowadays who, who are taking these decisions. But in your case, it's to do with South African Airways, uh, your long-time employers who are trying to be rescued, and uh, you are being perceived as the Pilots Association. Uh, and Grant is the chairman and Glenn is the chief negotiator uh, of putting an unnecessary spanner in the works. What's going on here, guys? You did, you did come back to the business rescue practitioners with an alternative plan, which hasn't uh, made it to the meeting of creditors tomorrow. Why are you being ignored? I think well, it started off, um, we're used to it, uh, the, the, uh, what we went through with Julie Mieni, uh, when she was, uh, obviously on, uh, on the board. And I remember she uh, getting up in parliament saying the number one problem in the airline are the pilots. Uh, so we, so we're used to getting, uh, attacked and, uh, certainly our association been down that road before. When the business rescue, uh, started in early December, we felt that the, the problem, and we really tried to engage openly with the business rescue practitioners. We've been told to get the best out of a business rescue. That was always the best way to go. So we certainly uh, engaged uh, with uh, Les Madison and Sidi Wedangwana. And uh, as time went on, though, we realized that any type of consultation we had with the business rescue practitioners was more of a box-ticking exercise, we felt, than anything else. Uh, entered the DPE, uh, and uh, they certainly – through this LCF, which is a labor consultative forum, 
we believed that for once we were being heard, we were being now invited as Labour to come together and work on a new plan for SA, uh, to turn it around and give, and give our input on we, what we think on, uh, would be the way forward in making SA successful again. As things progressed, uh, obviously getting five unions or six unions together, uh, all agreeing and singing off the same hymn sheet is not an easy task. Uh, we felt that we did, uh, did pretty well regarding uh, previous engagements with other unions. Um, however, about three weeks ago, there seemed to be a change in the perception and the interaction um, with the DPE. Um, and it, it, I think it was because ultimately we were questioning the data that we were getting uh, from the DPE. They were getting their data from about five different uh, plans that had been submitted from uh, Alvarez, was one of the first group that were brought in, uh, and then subsequent to that, um, Seabury were brought in. And uh, all the data they were getting, they were uh, analyzing and then formulating their own plan or perception. A lot of our concern was that uh, there, there was very little aviation expertise uh, within the DPE. And uh, that was causing us to get rather frustrated because uh, besides flying airplanes, we have a lot of uh, skill within our ranks. Uh, tertiary educations, master degrees, doctors, uh, you know, even within the pilot corps. And having been in the industry, both Glenn and I, for 25 plus years, um, you know, we, we, we feel we had a lot of value that we could, we could be adding and we weren't being heard. And I think we. Sorry, Grant, just, that. just, just yeah. to, uh, were you not brought into the conversation then? Were, because clearly the expertise, you got uh, more than 600 pilots. You are highly qualified people. You know the industry. This is your, your whole life. Were you not engaged with? We were, we were engaged. What we felt was an open, transparent manner. However, that certainly seemed to change as we got more uh, downstream or into the process with, uh, with the DPE and with the LCF. And I think as we started to push back and uh, make certain proposals and the more we were ignored, we realized that this was probably going to be another box-ticking exercise uh, to get labor on board. And we had been told that in order for the plan to be approved and for the financing, which still nobody knows where it's coming from, for the financing to be made available, all of labor had to be on board with what was being put in front of us. And we disagreed with what, what, what was being put in front of us. So um, I think that's the short that's the short answer, but I'd actually like to give Glenn an opportunity because Glenn has done an immense amount of work uh, analyzing the data and, and also putting together alternative proposals uh, on, on the way forward, which most importantly saves jobs, saves the fiscus going forward, um, and ultimately, from what we our perception, as it makes, airline, it makes SAA have a better chance of actually turning around. So, Alec, if I could pass over to Glenn. Of course. And, Glenn, before you start, uh, our liquor industry people have not come along. That's why I went a little longer than usual with Nick, and uh, we've got right up until 1 p.m., so not to worry about a, a time constraint uh, on that side. Glenn, over to you. Thanks very much, uh, Alec, and uh, thanks for inviting us on. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, we've been vilified. Uh, yes, we've been called uh, greedy and unreasonable, and uh, seeking to self-enrich ourselves under the facade of uh, trying to make a better plan. 
um, your previous guest uh, mentioned that when raising facts, when using data, uh, the immediate response are ad hominem attacks. And we've seen that same formula repeated against us in a way that's heartening uh, to know that it's, uh, it's not just us, that there's actually, there seems to be a concerted strategy, that that is how anybody who um, comes up with an alternative is approached. And as Grant mentioned, I mean, the last time we saw this, uh, this vitriolic narrative against the pilots was when we took on Dudu Mieni. Now, uh, along with uh, Outer, we approached um, government, we approached the courts and said that uh, Dudu Mieni was um, putting the airline at risk, that, uh, that her and people around her and their actions were going to result in this airline facing tremendous financial strife. And here we are, five years later, uh, in an airline that is absolutely crippled on its knees, and we have the ruling of an independent court that declared Dudu Amyeni a delinquent director. In addition to that, two years ago, we approached the board of SAA, who were doing nothing about the actions of the CFO and CEO at the time, the acting CEO, Pumeza uh, Nyatsi and Musazwani, uh, and uh, we made a Companies Act application to take on the powers of the board uh, to have an investigation into them. We were threatened with libel, we were threatened with lawsuits. Uh, instead, uh, the new board was appointed, Beyond Jahana came on board. The allegations and the information that we put forward was investigated, and Pumeza Nyatsi and uh, Musazwani were dismissed for, uh, if I recall correctly, gross negligence. Um, and yet here we are again, uh, raising an alternative, uh, wanting to speak with people, um, and instead of being engaged on the facts, instead of being engaged on the numbers, we're being vilified. So, you know, I think that anybody watching this, anybody reading the articles should be asking why. Why all of a sudden is there this almost rabid narrative being screened against the pilots and coming out again and again and again? And from our point of view, it can be because there has been no rebuttal of our alternative approach. Our alternative approach is one that deals with restructuring, it uh, with empathy. It allows the airline to have flexibility. And, and I must say, I, I'm not, I'm not in a huge hurry to criticize um, government here. What we are attempting to do at the moment with SAA would be incredibly difficult under normal circumstances. Then we're adding to that the fact that we're trying to do this under business rescue. And in addition, we're dealing with COVID-19 and no one has any idea what's going to happen uh, going forward. And so the approach that we took was to say, how can you design a new airline going forward on a data-driven basis using some kind of benchmarking that also allows for flexibility. And instead of engaging with us on that model, uh, as I say, we've just been called lots of, uh, lots of names. So, I mean, Grant alluded to it um, in uh, earlier, but essentially the, this is a very simple problem. And we have asked uh, the Department of Public Enterprise, they claim uh, you've probably seen it in all the articles that what we are proposing will cost more money and will cost the fiscus more and is not in the interests of the employees, the fiscus or the creditors. But they've not produced 
anything to back that up. There's no data behind it. We've asked them to do it. We had a meeting with them last week, Monday. They said they would supply, supply us with it. They haven't. We sent the same proposal to the business rescue practitioners. We had a meeting with them on Friday. They promised to provide us with a rebuttal of our alternative approach. To date, we have received nothing. Now, I'm not saying we're right. I'm not saying we have all the answers. But right now, there are some very simple questions that every, everybody can ask them themselves. There are two plans on the table. The one that is being put forward in the business rescue plan and our alternative approach. Now, does our proposal save more jobs? Absolutely. We start off with a total of 2,435 employees. And crucially, we do that in a way that comes in 155 million rand under the labor budget for this year. And it deals with a flexible approach to ramping up operations only when the traffic comes back. It includes a 20% pay cut for the pilots, uh, which is something that we put on the table unasked. Um, it sees a drop in average salaries because of senior people taking packages. And the way you achieve that is, of course, by offering better packages. Now, do the packages that we've put on the table, are they better for pilots than the current packages? Absolutely. But that's not for greed. That's not for uh, us trying to enrich ourselves. That's because in order to reduce the costs of this airline, which has shrunk and shrunk, and with it shrinking, of course, you've ended up with a more and more senior workforce. So our average salary has risen because of that. So what we want to do is incentivize as many senior people to leave as possible. And you do that by offering the best packages. And uh, the, the one thing that fascinates me in, in all of the reactions from, uh, from government and others is we didn't look at this and say, we want a bigger slice of a bigger pie. That would be greedy. Instead, we said, what are the ultimate goals here? We should be, and, and it's crazy for me that as, as a union that represents 600 people, that we're the only ones who seem to be fighting for more jobs to be retained and for people to be looked after better and for people not to be thrown onto the street and for people not to be um, sent out into the worst unemployment crisis that this country has ever faced. And we're the ones who are fighting for this. So we're trying to get 3,099 people eventually. But right now, we've come up with a way to save the fiscus 3.27 billion rand compared to the business rescue plan over five years. That's, that's not, you would think that if you put that number on the table, that uh, government would jump up and down and go, that's fantastic. You know, even if that's not the right number, if we can even get half of that, then, uh, then we're off to the races. And the, instead the reaction was, you don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. You're greedy. Uh, you're just trying to grab more. So let's talk about that quickly, if you don't mind. The, the DPE proposal seeks to pay 45% of the severance pay to pilots. Our proposal reduces that to 33%. And even better, we take a 2.2 billion rand pie and we reduce it to a 1.9 billion rand pie. We save the fiscus 100, sorry, 290 million rand straight off the bat. Again, it's, they're not interested. No one is Why? interested. No one is talking. Why, about. Can, can I answer that, Glenn? Can I yeah, answer so, so Glenn makes this proposal and he's done an incredible job and a PowerPoint presentation. It was really easy to follow. You know, one plus one is two and, 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 and there it is. And that's what's going to save you. And I mean, and we had, I mean, 99% of the rest of the labor unions fully supporting uh, this proposal, by the way. Um, and, 
And the one question they asked after this whole presentation, and of course the 3.2 billion rand saving, and uh, they say, well, what about your terms and conditions of employment? We need to talk about your terms and conditions of employment. That, to them, is the number one focus. No matter how much money we say we can potentially save. So it's a bugbear for them, and that's something that uh, that they want, come hell or high water. It's been a bugbear for them for, for, for many, many, many years. And it's Why? something that we have. Well, because the way they perceive it, they, they, they've always been told from within management that it's the pilot's uh, terms and conditions of employment, uh, which is creating the turmoil and why SAA can't make any money. Incidentally, SAA, money, SAA made money from 2008, 9, 10, 11, and 12 with the same agreement on the table. And in fact, Glenn gave me a great statistic here. He said, if the pilots had worked for just 50% of their salaries, uh, so that Kate takes care of terms and conditions of employment, for the last 10 years, the airline still would have lost 20 billion. In fact, we have often said to government, we could have worked for free and you still would have lost money. So it's a convenient scapegoat. They like to point fingers. Pilots, the terms and conditions of employment, um, they see them as very onerous. And I mean, in the words of the DG, he thinks that uh, what we're earning, um, uh, what was the word he used, Glenn? Uh, perverse. Perverse. Yeah. Says, Is it well, different to what, what you would be paid if you're working for other airlines? Well, Great question, Alec. Yeah, thanks, Grant. Great question. I mean, so they, uh, this loves to get thrown at us. Um, our salaries come from a 2009 agreement uh, that the company loved so much that they paid us a signing bonus to sign. They were so they, they were so keen to get us to sign that agreement that every pilot got a signing bonus for signing it. Um, that agreement has benchmarked us over the last 10 years. Eight out of those 10 years has benchmarked us locally, and two of the last 10 years have had international uh, benchmarkings. And in both of those, it's been found that we've been about 20 to 25 percent behind our international peers. And yet, despite being that far behind our international peers, we took an eight and a half percent increase in 2010 and a six percent increase in 2015. Um, so we've, we, we in fact have enjoyed lower increases than general staff in about three of the last um, seven years. We, we use a very uh, unique benchmarking system. We don't expect to earn in RAND terms what other pilots are earning in dollars. And that's probably just as well because we have pilots in Hong Kong who are earning 8, 10, 12 million RAND a year. Pilots in uh, Australia who earn 7, 8 million RAND. Uh, the pilots in America earn 50 to 100% more than the, than the South African Airways pilots. So once again, this narrative that we earn more than our international peers is completely untrue. Um, the, why do you guys stay, given that you are globally skilled, and, and, and obviously so, that you, you could get pilot jobs pretty much anywhere in the world at much bigger and much more secure airlines, why do you stick around? Why do pilots stay at South African Airways? Because, because the salaries are pretty good. We're, we're, not, we're, not, uh, we're, not looking, we're not looking to earn 8, 10, 12 million rand, Eric. Uh, we feel that our current salaries are um, appropriate for our role as highly qualified professionals. Um, we feel that they adequately reflect, uh, reflect the great responsibility that we carry, and we feel that uh, the remuneration is, uh, is matched to what we should expect to earn in this country as highly qualified professionals. Um, and that is the intent behind the benchmarking exercise. It takes all that data from around the world, and it says, what does a pilot in Germany earn compared to a professional in Germany? What does a pilot earn in America compared to a professional in America? 
and it makes that same comparison here. And then let's not forget, we're South Africans. We love this country. We love our company. We love flying for South African Airways. From the time I was four years old, that's all I ever wanted to do was, was not fly airplanes, was to fly a South African Airways airplane. And that's true for most pilots in SA. So we stay because we like it. We stay because, because we enjoy it. We stay because we're South African for the same reason everybody else stays in this country. And well said, Glenn. I mean, 100% spot on. Um, you know, obviously balance between what is, you know, what, what, what works for you. Is it financially driven or is it a balance between lifestyle and, and finances? You've lost uh, 120, 110 pilots, uh, took contracts, um, and they did it for various reasons. And that was about, what, two years ago, uh, where there was career advancement. I mean, South African Airways has reduced from 830 pilots uh, down to 617 on the seniority list today, 530 that are actively working. Um, and that's sadly due to, you know, our state of affairs within the company. We're constantly trying to shrink to profitability which anyone in the airline industry knows never works. So a lot of people have through frustration because, of course, it takes a long time to become a captain in the airline. At the moment, it's about 18 to 20 years, if not more, um, because it's all based on seniority and how fast the company's growing. But an interesting point, and if I can just, before we finish off your Alec, at SAA Grow, at just uh, 5% per annum for the 10 years from 2010 to date, Every pilot that was in South African Airways, there was 830 pilots at the time, would be a captain today. But what have we done? We've shrunk continually. Our pilots have gone and flown for other airlines because they can get to be a captain sooner. Uh, and they've given up the lifestyle of living in South Africa to go live in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, sadly, that's just indicative of this shrinking company um, that, that is not giving a lot of the junior guys opportunities to further their careers. That's just as and I think... Alex, Alex, if I could just then offer one word in closing, I think it's, you know, here we are, we're sitting talking about the pilot's proposals, the pilot's salaries. Uh, what we're not talking about is the fact that we have a state-owned enterprise that has been mismanaged into the state that it's in and is now contemplating dismissing 80% of its staff. Um, and, and, and that is a jobs bloodbath. And they are trying to do that by a voluntary severance package so that uh, no one can come back afterwards and claim that um, that this was uh, the result of of any uh, action by by anyone in power. And and I think you know right or wrong that's that's our theory. I'm not saying it's correct or not, but it's just I think anybody who reads anything about SA right now needs to ask why is the narrative being turned the way it is right now. Um, and as Grant says, uh, without our agreement, this airline would have lost billions. For years. Well, your uh, court, uh, the court judgment uh, that you went against Dudum Yeni and took five years to do it, uh, something which, in fact, the government should have done rather than a private sector, uh, explains everything. And anybody, I would urge anyone who actually wants to understand the SAA story to go and read that judgment. You had many opportunities to, uh, for the airline to be highly profitable, uh, and uh, Dudum Yeni and her, her political overlords decided not to allow that to happen or, in fact, actively sabotaged it. So it, it is strange, and, and maybe as a final comment here, so often we're seeing this happen where you take SARS as an example. You had a captured individuals going into SARS, messing up the place, firing the good people or the people who were wanting to make a contribution, getting them out of the system, and finally 
after a, a significant bloodbath, they're now invited, uh, not invited rather, back in to fix the place. And I guess from your perspective, that would be the question that I have to you. If you have experts in a particular sector, in a particular industry, why is it that South African Airways pilots are not being made part of the solution? Is it a industry-wide thing? Does it happen elsewhere in the world? Are pilots not promoted into management in in other airlines uh, elsewhere? Are they are they kept separate? It's just so the rest of us can understand how the sector works. Well, I was in a, at a conference in New Zealand about two years ago uh, because we participated in the Association of Star Alliance Pilots and we meet at various destinations and they happened to be hosting it in, in New Zealand. Air New Zealand was in a terrible condition about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, um, and uh, they'd become one of the top five airlines in the world. Uh, in fact, every time we'd meet, we'd always hear how successful they, they are and when we gave our report back, we'd kind of have to look at our feet and shuffle and and just say, you know, another, another, another loss followed by, you know, further losses and as, as our airline contracted. Um, but as far as the, the, the involvement of labor, one of the key takeaways that I, that I've had from those conferences is that if you look at all the successful companies out there in airlines, and it's probably across the board, the relationship between management and labor is essential and it needs to be harmonious and needs to be respect and there needs to be bringing in of the experts, whether that's from the labor force or outside, so be it. But, I mean, systematically, the pilots have been pushed out for the last, I would say, eight years um, from top management positions. When Judy Mieni came in, anyone who put their head above the parapet, removed. Uh, as far as the pilots are concerned, I mean, we had our ex-acting uh, CEO uh, who left and jumped ship, I think it was in March, just before the lockdown. Uh, she's now the CEO of uh, some other aviation entity in South Africa. Uh, she has systematically created a structure which disempowered the pilots from the day she took her position uh, as the head of flight operations. We have brought this to the attention of the board. We brought this to the attention of, of, uh, of the DPE, and it's continued uh, to date where the pilots have been disempowered um, as, as, a, as, a, as a constant uh, um, mindset from, uh, from, from everyone that was appointed, whether it was through Judy Mieni, and even after her departure, her legacy continued on. Very sad to see. We've tried to get involved and add our expertise, even with um, Vianney Gerana when he was a CEO. And I think he was very uh, actively uh, participated in engaging with us. Um, but the narrative remained, and there's the structure that remained in SA, which was anti-pilot, anti-pilot, anti-pilot. Uh, and it continues today. And to answer your other question, uh, is it is our pilots actively involved in management positions? Look at Lufthansa, look at the American carriers, um, look at Air New Zealand. All, uh, not all, but a vast majority of their management have come from the pilot ranks. Glenn? Yeah, no, I've got, uh, I've got nothing to, to add there, Grant, 100%. So, so what happens um, with you guys? You've got a meeting tomorrow with the creditors. How are you going to play it? We, we, well, look, I mean, we, we've been made out that, that we, you know, if, if we don't toe the line, then liquidation is, is going to, uh, is going to be the only option that government has. Uh, from our perspective, we certainly don't want to even consider liquidation. We believe SAA does have, uh, an opportunity to fill an aviation market in South Africa. And I know a lot of people are probably very tired about it. A lot of the listeners are going, why do we need SAA? And I think, you know, COVID-19 has changed a lot of things. Uh, I think a country needs an aviation sector. So I think it's a perfect opportunity 
to develop that sector, but of course we need the skills and the expertise to be brought in urgently, uh, you know, to make that a reality. So that's not going to happen through liquidation. Uh, obviously, looking after our members in, in, our, in the best way that we can wouldn't be done through liquidation. Um, so at the end, what are we trying to do? We're trying to make sure we can get the best exit strategy for our members, save as many jobs as we can, and try and save the fiscus at the same time. As Glenn, uh, or I call it Glenn's plan because I know I mean, he did like 80% of the work on it. Uh, does it achieve that? Absolutely. Uh, so when the vote happens tomorrow, we hope that uh, that the plan will be passed. Uh, and that we can work with whoever is appointed uh, thereafter. And I think it's important to say that part of the plan and the DPE, and to their credit, have committed to the right board been appointed. Uh, and I don't know if you realize this uh, at the moment, Alec, but I think there's only one person remaining on the board or two. Uh, there were some resignations last week. Uh, and to be, have a fit-for-purpose management team appointed at, uh, at SA. We haven't seen any names. We haven't seen any movement. You would have thought, you know, Bionni Gerana stepped down in June or July last year. You would have thought that they would have actively been seeking a replacement. Uh, the replacement we got was far from ideal, uh, uh, but uh, she's no longer with the company. Um, and we told the minister, we said, surely, had you made appointments now, even in an interim measure, and we brought people to the table with the aviation expertise that have turned companies around, Make those appointments, even if it's for a short period of time. Show the creditors that you're serious about making appointments. Show the South African public that you're serious about making the correct appointments. To date, nothing. So we have to trust that it's going to happen um, and uh, certainly hope that we are part of the, of, of the new future at SA. Yeah, thanks, Grant. I think, Alec, you know, our, um, our approach is that uh, we'd like to see as many jobs preserved as possible in SAA. We'd like to see um, this company thrive and grow. Um, and uh, we hope that the plan does uh, pass tomorrow, even though there are aspects of it with which we cannot agree. Um, there are, especially as they relate uh, to employees. And so we're taking advice and considering our position on how we're going to vote tomorrow. Um, but the key takeaway for us is, uh, we have made a number of proposals that we think have merit, have uh, have data behind them, and save money. And so we will continue to take these proposals forward into the new relaunched SAA. Uh, we are very hopeful that um, the new management that DP have committed to will come on board quickly, and we'll then uh, take these same proposals to them. And hopefully once we're talking to aviation experts, hopefully once we're talking to people that don't have um, the amount of baggage uh, involved that currently, um, you know, I think uh, SA is paying a lot of overweight baggage charges when it comes to talking at the moment, unfortunately. Um, so hopefully once we manage to cut out that, from our side, we're fully committed. We have committed to the DPE that we will renegotiate uh, terms and conditions. We, Even though we don't think it's the cause of where we are today, we will negotiate uh, a new agreement that replaces uh, the old one. The world has changed. We accept that. We acknowledge that. All we want is a fair shake. We want the employees who remain to uh, to be looked after as well as they possibly be, and we want everybody. And this is the one, the biggest point that has been missed in our proposal. Our proposal pays a better severance package to every single employee because to put people on the street in this current environment is bad enough, but to put an airline employee um, onto the street right now is tantamount to throwing them out of the aircraft without a parachute. There simply is there simply are no jobs in the aviation industry right now. And in order to look after people fairly, in order to look after people humanely and with empathy, 
you need to be putting people out there with the ability to survive anything between 12 months and 24 months. Otherwise, you're basically assigning people to the financial financial death sentence. And Glenn, and it does, and your plan does that without any further cost to the fiscus. And I think it's an important point. Thanks, Alex. Grant Beck is the chairman of the South African Airline, South African Airways Pilots Association. Glenn Smith, the chief negotiator, and then you had some insight ahead of the big meeting tomorrow uh, that they will be having with the creditors. Indeed, uh, the pilots themselves are creditors, so they'll be going into that meeting as. Uh, I suppose, equal partners to a degree, excepting that the banks have got a much bigger vote than they have got. But uh, good talking with you. We we dug around a lot today. I know South Africa, uh, you might think that from time to time we we get a little bit uh, hot under the collar. Not the, the, the point. That's not the way to, to work it. We are trying to find solutions for our fantastic country. And uh, by asking the difficult questions, by digging a little deeper, by looking at things that uh, perhaps – most people miss because they don't have the time or the inclination uh, to reflect on so much of what's being imposed on our nation right now. Uh, we hope that we will be helping to provide a solution rather than adding to the problems. I'm Alec Hogg. I look forward to being back with you with Rational Radio on Monday at noontime. Just a, a quick reminder that on Thursday, we've got the Investec founders, Ian and Bernard Cantor, and Stephen Kossif, they'll be in our Noontime Thursday webinar. Uh, you can sign up for that uh, as um, on, on the Biz News site. And, of course, we send out regular reminders through the Daily Insider. Thanks again for being with us. Uh, my colleague Stuart Lohman is, uh, is still uh, on, on the sidelines. Stu, can you just tell us where the recordings yes. of, uh, of the podcast will be? Thanks, Alec, and thanks to you and the guests for plenty of food for thought. As I said, it's a good time for listening in these times, which is great. Um, just on the chat bar there on the right-hand side, to all those still on the webinar, there's a little link to the YouTube channel. If you put click on that, you'll be able to revisit all our webinars. And on the premium page, on the home page, on the website itself, there's a little Google Calendar where you can actually get access to all the webinars we host as business. But that's it from me and have a great day. Thank you. Cheerio.